From the Bridge by Hart Crane Under thy shadow by the piers I waited, Only in darkness is thy shadow clear. The city's fiery parcels all undone, Already snow submerges an iron year. O sleepless as the river under thee, Vaulting the sea, the prairie's dreaming sod, Unto us lowliest sometimes sweep descend, And the curve ship lend a myth to God. Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 23, The Bridge, Part 2. Fath made his way over felled pilings, wrecked I-beams, and mounds of brick and wire. His mind raced wildly. He kept Cuddy in his simulacrum's peripheral vision, but thought of his parents, Harumi, Mike and Mindy, a cryptogram turned sideways, Donna Chang's red notebooks. They were anagrams, weren't they? The code for reading the ancient Chinese texts was inherent in the text itself. Or was he incorrect? Bath! Major McGillicuddy called out. John landed on the walkway behind Cuddy. I'm here, he spoke, a tense desperation spurting from his simulacrum's voice box. I have to admit, I'm having a bit of trouble concentrating. Cuddy glanced over his shoulder as Bath approached. It's the rush of adrenaline. Your body in the coffin in the laboratory. Cuddy stated this as if it was obvious. John paused contemplating the fact he hadn't considered it. Can I have told you that? Cuddy shook his head. No, I, I felt it too. Bath hovered over Cuddy. He looked down at the Major's coveralls, shredded at the ankle. Large, open welts pockmarked Cuddy's robotic leg where shot had ripped into his pseudoskin. Will you look at that? Cuddy pointed at his injuries, marveling at the gray-green liquid oozing from the wound. John knelt next to the Major. His first instinct was to stop the bleeding. But Cuddy wasn't a man. He was a robot. And that wasn't blood seeping from him. It was something else. Bath's mechanical eyes focused, lenses whirring in his electronic skull. It's moving, he said. The liquid, your blood, it, it's trying to get back inside you. Cuddy shifted quickly, as if threatened. What? Bath put a hand on the Major's chest as if to steady him. No, it, it's okay. It must be the nanomachines. The what? Little robots in your simulacrum, John explained. They travel through the plasma. 
I guess when it comes out of your body, the machine wants to fix your wounds and, and go back inside. Cuddy shook his head. Don't get up, John cautioned. Not yet. Let them work. Cuddy relented and then looked Bath over. You okay? Yeah, John nodded, obviously distracted. Cuddy glanced across the bridge, up to the buildings alongside the tunnel. Once smooth mortar now seemed to spill from between vast stone edifices. Cracked and broken windows hovered. We can't stay here, Cuddy said. It's not safe. He drew John's attention to the windows, then the wide lanes of asphalt and concrete, roads leading into the city. They may be back, bringing reinforcements. John stood. He walked over to the bag of supplies the Rockheads used to make improvised incendiary devices, explosives they hurled at him and Cuddy. Bring that here, Cuddy ordered. Bath shifted the satchel of books and expired canned goods over his shoulder. He was surprised he could lift the bag of explosives, then heard the faint spin of servos, motors inside his simulacrum. The robot body was, of course, doing all the work. He placed the box next to Cuddy. The Major peered inside. He saw fuel, cotton, fuses, and flares. Can you carry these in your bag? What are we going to do with this stuff? John asked. That wasn't my question, Cuddy said, leaning forward on one knee. John protested. I'm carrying the cans and the... Dump the books. Cuddy stood. We're not collecting artifacts. Can't do anything with them anyhow. Bath wanted to argue. As the lead scientist on the mission, he considered collecting artifacts more necessary than stockpiling weapons. But he knew the sentiment would be as lost on Cuddy as would be the use of rotten canned food for currency. Cuddy checked the sawn-off shotgun. John watched, recognizing Cuddy did this with a sense of satisfaction. Come on. Cuddy walked away from John towards the end of the elevated walkway. Bath reluctantly dumped the books out on the catwalk. Copies of the King James Bible, Kaufman's Nietzsche, Churchill's Concise History, and a rough-hewn paperback. Some tawdry tale of sex and violence that strangely seemed more culturally relevant to the professor than the other books. As John knelt to fill the satchel with what supplies he could, he watched the thin trail of viscous green liquid nearby. The trail bubbled, then it coagulated into a snake-like form, chasing after Major McGillicuddy. Let's go, the Major called. Constructed by the New York Bridge Company between 1870 and 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge was a hybrid cable-stayed suspension bridge in New York City, spanning the East River between the boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn. The longest suspension bridge in the world at the time of its opening in May of 1883, the bridge was the first fixed crossing of New York's East River, with a main span of 486.3 meters and a deck of 38.7 meters above water. The bridge's two 85-meter-tall suspension towers were built of limestone, granite, and cement. Each tower contained a pair of Gothic Revival-pointed arches, through which the bridge's roadways and pedestrian promenade run. In the early 21st century, the Brooklyn Bridge remained a monument of American industrialism and culture until the fall of New York. The bridge and its promenade fell into disuse, with it eventually becoming a site of gang violence and territorial warfare.
The military utility vehicle kicked up gravel as Lieutenant John Running Bear swung the wheel. From the passenger seat, General Castro saw the lieutenant was an experienced driver. Castro pulled back the slide catch on the 10mm Beretta. He released the catch, cycled around into the chamber, and switched on the automatic safety. What kind of reception do you anticipate? Castro asked. Iku and I came down through the Bronx, Running Bear said, glancing in the back seat at his Japanese traveling companion. Iku Kaminari's eyes were closed, his nostrils flared. We fought our share of mutants and monsters. Esther said Silvio Jones blocked the ports of entry, Castro reminded the lieutenant. Yeah, that's the word, Running Bear replied, taking his eyes away from the road before them to look at the general. You've seen what weapons they have. You know what we're up against. He demands tribute. Iku spoke solemnly behind them. Which he's not going to get, Running Bear added. Castro felt the faint movement of his pseudo-skin before he was aware he was smiling. What? Running Bear asked as he turned the wheel, heading for the road diverting access to the bridge. Nothing, Castro shook his head. It's just amazing to me that after centuries, a millennia of technological and cultural advancements, when danger, fear set in, men always fall back on their baser instincts. They aren't men, Iku said. No, Castro agreed, but they've certainly made it clear that territory, tribute, and power are all more important than rebuilding, creating a sense of harmony, community. Iku groaned dismissively. Running Bear nodded. Welcome to the free world, General. The lieutenant pointed in front of them. There. What's that? Castro engaged his enhanced mechanical eyes to scan ahead of them. Concrete barriers, he answered his own question. Bottlenecks to siphon foot and vehicular traffic onto the same route. Yeah, the lieutenant agreed. He pointed at the ceiling and gunned the engine. Guard tower. They know we're coming. The vehicle passed a handful of men and women on the right side of the road, all of them six to twelve feet apart. No mutants, none of them traveling together. General Castro looked back, trying to get a glimpse of the faces. He saw nothing and turned his attention to what lay before them. You realize if you drive this tank in there, it's going to put them on edge. Good, Iku growled. The general watched Running Bear squint, as if thinking for a long moment, maybe weighing their chances. Once we're in the gauntlet, he told the older man, there's no going in reverse. If Castro had been human, something other than the robotic form his consciousness inhabited, he would have breathed deep, centered himself, prepared for diplomacy, or for war. What do you want to do, general? Running Bear turned the military vehicle into the wide channel. He slowed the engine so they crawled between concrete barriers on both sides. Benjamin gazed down at the steel weapon in his hands. He thought of Cuddy and Bath. He hoped they kept their heads about them, worked together to navigate their way into the hostile city, a place unlike any they had ever been. I want to talk to them. Castro finally spoke, his tone cool, but more human. Who? Running Bear guided the military vehicle along the right side of the bridge, below the elevated path for foot traffic. Silvio Jones, Castro told them. His people. I didn't come here to start a battle. I came for information. Maybe we can... Huh. <laughs> Iku scoffed from the back seat. The sound was deep and forceful enough to stop Castro from speaking. 
talk, Kaminari said. Too much talk. The general rolled sideways to turn, get a glimpse of the man seated behind him. The hilt of Kaminari's katana touched lightly against his kimono. Castro turned back to Running Bear. The lieutenant let the vehicle creep forward slowly. Your call, he said, when they were at the midpoint of the bridge. Castro nodded. Get me close enough. I'll get out and... Talk. You cover me. If I get into a jam... Distracted by what he saw of the left lane of the bridge parallel to them, he didn't finish. Parts of the left lane were damaged, decayed. Everything but its supports had fallen into the river. John Running Bear flashed a grin and exhaled from his nose. He said nothing, as if trusting the war-wise in general, or as if this was an order. The lieutenant gave the vehicle some gas, moving forward on the bridge. Castro saw movement ahead. Easy, he said, but the lieutenant was already moving the vehicle cautiously. Stop. Castro nodded before them at two large stanchions ablaze. A row of reinforced metal crates lay beneath the columns, forming a long, multicolored wall, waist-high across the bridge. Indentions and holes in the wall suggested others had come, guns blazing, to fight with Silvio Jones's mutated thugs. Castro wondered if any were successful, or did the loser's body simply get dumped over the bridge? No doubt they have guns, Running Bear noted, his voice little more than a whisper in the vehicle. Guns, Iku grumbled. Guns, guns, guns. You give too much weight to the ability to shoot at a distance. Fear can be a more deadly weapon. Surprise, a more valuable tactic. Fine, Running Bear relented, as if he had heard it all before. Castro turned his attention from the obstacle in their path to the bridge itself. Railings and footholds. Places to run or gain cover. He wasn't counting on Jones's people listening to reason, nor was he confident in his own abilities. He was playing for time, input and analysis, something to bargain with, or some unique advantage he could leverage to give him power. Fire isn't exactly subtle, is it? Benjamin asked. Running Bear smirked. There's nothing subtle about Silvio Jones and his gangs of mutants. Everywhere we've gone, where we've tangled with them, the young man looked back at Iku, and then hesitated. Well... Let's just say they're a bit different than your average rockhead, or... Different how? They communicate, Iku said. And, Running Bear added cautiously, some of them have... Powers. Castro recalled La Cina Bell's swan-like wings and the amphibious body of a mutant he encountered while fleeing from Governor's Island. He remembered the mutants in the hole in the church floor, the one-eyed girl among others. How, he wondered, had so many people with varying levels of mutation fallen into separate factions, gangs, and tribes who discriminated against others? They were mutated humans, after all, Castro thought, weren't they? Or was there some other influence at work here? Castro opened his door. What are you doing? Running Bear asked. Like I said, Castro turned back, I'm going to talk to them. He tucked the Beretta into his coveralls, trying to shift its weight so it wasn't readily visible. Cover me. And if that doesn't work? The lieutenant asked plainly. Castro gestured to the rear of the vehicle. You've got enough explosives and firepower back there. Improvise. 
As Castro closed the door behind him, Iku Kaminari leaned forward. New York City opens today. His words seethed toward Lieutenant Running Bear. Castro approached the roadblock and pillars of fire. He walked cautiously towards the barricade spread across the bridge. I just want to talk. He spied darting eyes and waist-high peepholes to the left and right. That's far enough, a creaky voice inside the plastic and concrete barrier insisted. The general looked up to see a figure hovering several meters above, descending towards the torches. His thoughts returned to La Signa Belle the winged swan-like creature flying, floating around the parish hall on Nut Island. The creature glided down, one leg raised, towards the pillars. Who are you? Castro asked, lowering his raised hands slightly. The newly arrived figure wore form-fitting black silk pants and a shirt covered by a shiny white blazer with wide lapels. A black wood kalaka mask with lavender and white designs completed the ensemble. Are you Jones? The figure scoffed, sauntering assuredly towards Benjamin. Huh. Not hardly. The voice was low. Castro was unsure if this was a man or a woman. He wondered where in this desolate, fractured place a creature found such resplendent attire, or why they needed them. I know why you came, the figure stood near the general. I don't, however, know what you are, General Castro. Benjamin took a step back, fought the urge to get the hell out of there. You have me at a disadvantage. And you are? You may call me Nuestra Señora de la Santa Muerte. Castro's Spanish was rusty, unpracticed, but he understood the reference. Our Lady of the Holy Death, he said, from the tradition of Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Castro paused, wondering what was beneath the dark, authentic mask. He tried getting a glimpse of the creature's hands. You're a mutant. Is that why you wear the mask? An oversimplification of what we are. Castro watched the eyes in the nearby peepholes. He turned back to Santa Muerte. You said you knew why I came, but... Yes, she said, nodding slightly. Castro saw brilliant pale amber eyes and long lashes. You're with the magistrate, then? No. I have followed you since before the Battle of Governor's Island, since you and your allies destroyed the base under Liberty Island. Castro leaned back. He was unsure if his, Cuddy's, and Bath's actions garnered the attention of the mutants. Now he knew the answer. And, if they were being followed, how much did their pursuers know? If you know about the bunker, then you know what I am, Castro said plainly. Santa Muerte stood a few scant meters from Castro. He supposed the body, the voice, belonged to something female, but was still confused as to her motives. I've been following your career for much longer than simply the past few days, Benjamin. May I call you Benjamin? I'd rather... Santa Muerte interrupted. I've been aware of your actions, your exploits, since before the fall of New York City, before you were chief diplomat from Israel. It is important to gain intelligence on one's potential adversaries, don't you think? 
How long? Castro asked sternly. Santa Muerte groaned audibly, as if finding humor in the general's unease. <laughs> Let's just say I was influential in that incident between Paraguay and Bolivia, oh, some 65, 66 years ago. You were promoted to colonel, weren't you? He felt servo motors in his simulacrum's jaw tighten. His fists clenched. He remembered the situation she described, but vaguely. As a lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Defense Force, Castro took over command from a disgraced colonel overseeing operations in a proxy war between Bolivia and Paraguay. Castro's predecessor completely misread field conditions, ignored his duties. It was Colonel Haft, wasn't it? Santa Muerte turned her back to Castro. He was compromised, caught up in an international scandal, using the conflict what you later described in your book as operational insecurity to enrich himself in the South American drug trade. Castro shrugged. My book? Since his rebirth in the Phoenix Project, Benjamin had hardly thought of the memoirs and military texts published under his name, but primarily ghostwritten by his protege, Arthur Roth. Santa Muerte continued. That incident was made even more humiliating for Israel when revelations came to light from the confessions of half's Bolivian Iranian mistress. So you're a student of history, Castro deflected. No. Santa Muerte pivoted gracefully on her heel. I was there, General. Bolivia nearly overran Paraguay. Who do you think helped clear the way for you to organize an orderly retreat of Israeli forces during the political withdrawal? That's impossible, Kasha raised his voice. Was it possible this masked creature could be as old as he was? Or older? Santa Muerte groaned, unimpressed. It wasn't the time for the Iranian-backed Bolivians to see themselves anointed on the world stage. No single thrall enjoyed the cult of personality necessary to dominate. His memory muddled. Castro tried making sense of what Santa Muerte said. He recalled the conflict, his ability to organize a surprise offensive using forces seemingly marshaled for extraction. During two desperate weeks, forces from Israel and Paraguay combined to seize 50% of lost territory. Your country came to dominate the region, didn't they? Castro nodded reluctantly. The Bolivians surrendered. Her glee was evident despite the mask. Your role in these events brought you fame, political fortune. You were promoted, yes? Yes, I was. Santa Muerte paced. Chief of General Staff for the Israeli military. Counsel to the Israeli State Department. Two celebrated terms as ambassador to Paraguay. Then, the United States. She recited a list of Castro's accomplishments and titles. Not an insignificant career. Maybe, Castro played along. The mask muffled Santa Muerte's laughter. General Castro, or should I call you Ambassador, did you really think you earned all those honors on your own? There's no way one, one mutant, or whatever you are, could have lived that long or have that much power. No, I was there. I know what happened, and I know what I saw. Hmm. Santa Muerte turned. She tapped the side of her mask. Of course. But just because you don't believe it, doesn't mean it's impossible. She walked back to stand beneath the pillars of fire. Ironic, though, isn't it? 
that Colonel Half's personality flaws helped elevate you in command, and yet, years later, you failed to protect yourself from the same temptations. What's that supposed to mean? Castro bore down on the masked woman with hostile, mechanical eyes. He searched for something about Santa Muerte, anything that would explain her knowledge of him or give him an edge in the conversation. Well, I just mean that it was either a deceitful escapade or a moment of abject weakness that led you into the arm of Adnan Gohan's wife. Tell me, were you engaged in espionage with her, legs wrapped around you so, or were you hesitating, holding back, wondering if she was seducing you on behalf of her husband? In a flash, Castro thought of Miral and her mother. Instinctively, he plunged his hand into his coveralls, felt the Beretta in his fist. Uh, damn you! Castro barely got the weapon out before the eyes in the barricade were replaced by rifle barrels. What manner of devil are you? Santa Muerte stepped forward fearlessly. She cackled. Purple and white glowed in the carved grooves of the ornate skull mask. Come now, Benjamin. Surely a soldier like yourself knows well this world has long been populated by every kind of mystic, demigod, thrall, or magician. You call them angels, demons. Well, that's fine. Santa Muerte held out her left hand, fingers bent slightly, as if grasping something rigid. Castro felt the gun shaking in his simulacrum fist. The harder he clenched, the more the weapon was wrest from him. Succumbing to Santa Muerte's power, Castro felt himself levitating inches off the ground. Pulled from him, the automatic handgun hovered nearby. And now, Santa Muerte closed the distance between them. You will come with me. Machine or man, you will be tribute to my master. Castro struggled uselessly. Who? Who is your master? Jones? The Rockheads? Nightshade? Don't be ignorant. Santa Muerte squeezed her fist. Castro felt a sharp pain ripple through his robot body, a sensation he wasn't supposed to experience. Who? Castro cried out. The words had barely emanated from the simulacrum's voice box when twin arrows cut through the air. Low to the ground, long shafts overcame the holes in the barricade. The armed sentries crouched behind the plastic barrier cried out. No! Santa Muerte shouted. As her fingers tightened, the pressure within Castro's simulacrum intensified. How was this happening? How could he feel this? Castro heard a piercing, buzzing sound. Over there, now, over there, inside him, everywhere. Santa Muerte raised her right hand swiftly. A row of abandoned vehicles turned, twisting into the guardrails behind the general. Dangling in midair, Benjamin turned his head to see John Running Bear standing in the clearing, his assault rifle aimed at Santa Muerte. Iku Kaminari, longbow in hand, scampered to Castro's right, out of the general's peripheral vision. Put him down, witch, Running Bear ordered. Fools! Santa Muerte spread her arms out, as if clinging to something. The flaming pillars behind the masked woman flared, burning brightly, as she waved her arms in deliberate, almost mechanical motions. Santa Muerte spoke an incantation in a hybrid of Spanish and Nahuatl. General, Running Bear called out. Nearby, a vehicle shredded, 
Metal, fiberglass, and plastic parts flew through the air, pelting Running Bear in his vehicle. The lieutenant stood his ground as hot metal and melted glass ripped through his sleeves. Unable to get a clean shot at Santa Muerte's chest, Running Bear took half a breath and then shifted his aim until the black mask was in his sights. The bullet ripped through the air, over General Castro's shoulder. Santa Muerte fell back against the asphalt. Castro watched a thin wisp of smoke circle over the mask. The woman's hold over the general was broken. He fell to one knee, stood, and gazed back at Running Bear. The lieutenant was crouched near the rear of the military utility vehicle. A pile of shrapnel littered the ground nearby. You okay? Castro called to Running Bear. I'm fine. You? I don't... Before General Castro could finish, Santa Muerte rose from where she fell. A fine dust appeared in the mask, just right of center. You should not have done that. She wiped debris from her silk lapel. Santa Muerte's amber eyes flared. Castro saw the sentry tower that Lieutenant Running Bear had pointed out to him. One man in the tower activated a siren. The other raised a rifle. Santa Muerte raised her hands. The white and purple lines of the mask glowed. Lieutenant! Castro turned towards Running Bear. Get out of there! With a jerking motion, Santa Muerte crossed her arms over her chest. My master's interest in you is great. No eres digno de ello. He will be displeased to see you destroyed without possessing the full capabilities of your alchemia. My alchemy? Castro repeated. You mean technology? The green stream? Santa Muerte closed her eyes. Her fingers twitched, and she spoke another incantation. A row of battered, broken-down vehicles scattered to the guardrails, falling over the bridge into the water. This cleared a path for a swarm of rockheads on both sides of the bridge. Behind the barricade, Lieutenant Running Bear took cover behind the military utility vehicle. He fired into the line of approaching mutants. Iku! The lieutenant shouted in between bursts of rifle fire, Guard tower! From somewhere out of sight near the guardrail, an arrow was notched and fired. A second bolt felled the armed sentry in the tower. General Castro rushed Santa Muerte, tackling the masked woman. Stop this! I only wanted to talk to your master! Benjamin climbed over the woman, his hands clawing, grasping for the throat somewhere under the carved mask. Santa Muerte was strangely calm, without struggle, as spindly, root-like tentacles extended from her back. What the hell? Castro pulled back as the limbs snaked around his legs and arms. You and your soldiers have no idea what you're up against. You're unprepared for the aftermath, and you will lose. Castro tore himself from the organic snares. With the brisk, powerful motion of someone much younger than him, the general threw Santa Muerte's glowing Dia de los Muertos mask from her face. There, he gazed upon the hideous visage, a rotten, worm and insect plastered face with lidless amber eyes and recessed sockets. My god, what the hell are you? You know what I am, Benjamin. Stony teeth moved over the grotesque skull. I am the servant of Demi. Bastard of Archons, destroyer of gods. Castro recoiled. On the other side of the barricade, beyond the pillars of fire, he saw rockheads approaching, maybe a dozen or more. Distracted, 
he relinquished his grip on the deformed creature below him. Santa Muerte backed away from the general, wresting herself from his control. As Santa Muerte got to her feet, Castro staggered, then scrambled for the automatic on the ground nearby. Now, you will abandon this foolish cause. You will come with me. Lengthy soil and bark-encrusted vines protruded from her back, stretching through the air between them. Others crawled across broken asphalt, reaching for General Castro as if the tentacles had minds of their own. When Benjamin got the weapon in his hand, he felt the vines around his simulacrum's legs, winding their way up to his torso. Castro winced, trying to turn, to free his hands to pull the trigger. He spun, but was unable to fire. You cannot kill me, Benjamin. Not like this. You owe me for what you became. For what you are. The battle raged on around them. Lieutenant John Running Bear shifted between his arsenal of machine guns and explosives, dispatching the small army of rockheads coming from the Brooklyn side of the bridge. When he was done with one weapon, he tossed it to the ground and filled his arms or hands with another, often using multiple weapons at the same time. Running Bear tried to keep track of where his partner, Iku, was, but it was useless. The aged, shoeless Japanese man moved silently along the guardrails. One moment, Kaminari was knocking climbing mutants off the bridge. The next, he was notching his bow to defend General Castro from the approaching herd of rockheads beyond the barricade. Castro's mechanical teeth gnashed. Santa Muerte's vines wound about him like too many ropes tightening against his arms, his chest, and his neck. Is this it? Castro thought, wondering if his failure here also meant death to his human body in the Phoenix Project. I may be unable to wind my way into your machine head, but bless me, you will be made to serve my master. You will serve Demi. Her amber eyes glimmered, pupils full. For a moment, Castro thought he was consumed, drawn into those portals. He gazed on stars, planets, distant galaxies. Pathways in his brain spent their electronic transmitter, and nanomachines and motors worked overtime. Santa Muerte approached, one foot before the other. There was almost something elegant about the way she walked, despite her gruesome appearance. When she leaned over to peer down at the restrained Castro, her jawbone drew back, the gnarled teeth spread out in a hideous kind of smile. Then, Santa Muerte shuddered, flailing forward. A longbow arrow pierced the monster's chest. Black blood dripped from its sharp point. When Santa Muerte turned, the tentacles around General Castro loosened, but did not retract. In the distance, beyond the barrier, Castro saw the cloaked Iku Kaminari notching another arrow. Santa Muerte shouted at Kaminari, a demonic siren's wail. Her hand stretched out as if to take control of Iku. The stoic Japanese professor loosed his next arrow, only to watch it frozen in midair between him and Santa Muerte. Santa Muerte gasped, as if in her injured state, controlling the bolt was more difficult. Behind her, General Castro freed himself, throwing off the loosened vines around him. Without hesitation, Castro aimed the 10mm at Santa Muerte's exposed head. Santa Muerte spun, lurched, arms outstretched, fingers splayed, bent in all directions. A shrill sound escaped her mouth, along with the flecks of obsidian black matter. Iku Kaminari walked calmly, determined. He seemed oblivious to the rockheads behind him and Castro before him. 
in fluid motions, Iku withdrew his sharp katana and brought the blade across Santa Muerte's neck, then chest. The monster's head fell to the ground, then rolled as if still alive over to General Castro. The bleeding, disfigured face gazed upon Benjamin. I am defeated, but so are you. The Archons, return. You must join with Demi, or perish in the apocalypse. The amber eyes went gray, recessing further in their sockets. With that, Santa Muerte was silent. Rotten flesh turned to ash and dirt. Worms and insects fled the morbid head, seeping into cracks and crevices along the ravaged asphalt bridge. Nearby, Iku Kaminari's second arrow fell to the ground between the flaming pillars. The fire on the torches burned out, extinguished. The vine appendages hardened at Castro's sides, turning to thin, bark-laden branches. Seeing the destruction of Santa Muerte, the oncoming rockheads paused. They exchanged glances with Iku and Binyamin, and then tossed their truncheons and spears to the ground and scurried away towards New York City. Castro bent down and picked up one of the branches at his feet. He stood near Iku. Thanks, he said, and broke the wood in his hand. You needed help, Kaminari said, in the odd monotone Benjamin was getting used to. Castro stared at the man for a long moment, recounting the events back in his head. How long had it been? What had Santa Muerte said? Was it all nonsense? The general and Kaminari watched as Lieutenant Running Bear defended himself from the last holdouts on the bridge, rockheads wielding makeshift slug throwers, batons, and weak incendiaries. From a position of cover, the lieutenant was able to dispatch them with ease. Finally, John Running Bear pulled himself into the battered military utility vehicle. The truck crawled through the remaining smoke, fire, and debris over to where the general and Iku struggled to move the weighted barricades. Here. Running Bear swung his door open. He stood outside the vehicle with his rifle. I'll put them on a winch and move them, he said. Castro nodded. What the hell just happened? Running Bear asked. What was that thing? Castro looked back at what was left of Nuestra Señora de la Santa Muerte. He looked back at the lieutenant, and then he shook his head. Iku Kaminari followed Lieutenant Running Bear to the back of their vehicle. Running Bear was exhausted and except for a cut above his eye and the damage shrapnel did to his uniform, he was otherwise unharmed. Well, he said to his friend, you were right. Iku raised an eyebrow. The bridge is now open. The retirement wing of the Phoenix Project was not a particularly pleasant place. The narrow, multi-tiered box nestled in the center of the project was accessible by elevators and corridors monitored by robot hosts, youth nurses, and housekeepers. The decor was an awkward blend of wood paneling and drywall painted and repainted, gobs of spackle, peeling coral, sea foam, and sand-colored paint. Cracked white and green tiles lined the floors in no particular pattern. Despite the warmth of old radiators, the smell of antiseptic and the hum of oxygen pumps, automated med drips, and cannibalized equipment, Gabriel Princip felt a strange sense of comfort here. There were no surveillance cameras, no security patrols, no maintenance personnel making repairs. No one was hurrying from place to place. 
Gabriel stood outside the reception area. He stole a quick glance at his usual disguise in the scratched reflecting pane. Orange dye in his hair and green contact lenses were temporary, but had always been sufficient in his previous visits. Gabriel winced at the broad storage sticker hanging over the metal door to the retirement compound. He turned the rusted metal doorknob and entered the reception area. There, he was greeted by a boxy, non-humanoid robot. Good morning, Gabriel spoke, the timbre of his voice a whole tone higher than his low tenor. My name is... Before Gabriel could finish, the robot moved on a track below it and scanned him. Dr. Math, John A. Gabriel resisted the instinct to smile, satisfied. I have permission from Colonel Dana Marsh, commander of the Phoenix Law Division, to visit my mother, Ambassador Caitlin or Reardon, uh, Caitlin Bath. The robot hesitated. Probably a flaw in its programming, Gabriel thought, not suspicion. These robots were built long before the initial execution of the project. Their artificial intelligence was archaic, unevolving. Yes, permitted. Visual therapy core pain. Proceed. Gabriel nodded, and the robot returned to its starting position by a false window. Gabriel walked through the reception area, past walls of generators, computer hardware, and cables crawling the walls into overhead conduits. He paused in the main hall. Along the corridor were long, orange-colored garage doors. Placards next to the doors read, Sick Room, RX Therapy, Incidental Neuropathy. Gabriel had never been in those places, but assumed they were like all the other so-called courts in the annex places the Phoenix Project's senior citizens were protected from the outside world, places other citizens were unpermitted to see into. No, Gabriel thought, that wouldn't do. Surely there would be a revolt if the larger population of the Phoenix Project saw how the master computer and prevailing council dosed its elders with all manner of tonics and therapies, pills and poisons to render them more vulnerable than time and age already had. They were swirled away, out of sight, out of mind. Gabriel came to the long metal door marked Visual Therapy. He inserted an analog keycard in a door and slid the door up into the ceiling. The darkened antechamber separated spectators from a larger room filled with water. Ultraviolet light emanating from inside the aquatic sensory deprivation tank bounced off plexiglass between Gabriel and the water-filled room. Light fractured, casting colorful polygons across the floor. Gabriel gazed into the tank. Three elderly men and two women, all in skin-tight rubber suits, floated. Flexible tubes connected various oral, ocular, and breathing equipment to their wrinkled faces. Bonded wires ran from the devices into the walls. Clear, corrugated plastic tubes connected to the breathing apparatus around the faces of those in the tank. This was the occupational therapy unit for those who, like Caitlin, John Bass' mother, were mostly deaf or blind. Plugged into the peculiar blend of 20th and 21st century technology, these older citizens relived past experiences, occupational triumphs, political and professional accomplishments. Virtual reality simulators afforded them the opportunity to reimagine themselves young, vibrant, full of life, and, at least in their minds, manipulate elements of their past. They could sidestep documented crises, avoid public embarrassment, unmake the events leading to the fall of New York, 
and the collapse of Western democracy. What the aged ambassadors, politicians, and analysts didn't know was these fantasy routines contributed greatly to the logic and reason programming of the central processor. Role-playing a variety of scenarios with human subjects allowed the computer to obtain information about the actions, reactions, and random interactions of those in the project. Learning from these seniors, the computer predicted how middle-aged and younger citizens would adapt to a variety of ordinances, edicts, and strategies. In this way, the council could predict and the central processor could use social engineering to control the population, especially the youth. Of course, those in the tank, the rest of the convalescent wing, were oblivious to this. Even the members of the Phoenix Council were in the dark. Gabriel knew because, when performing remote repairs on a surveillance droid, he came across locked subroutines and unique source code. In a fit of boredom, Gabriel's curiosity was piqued, and against regulations, he cracked the code. One loose thread led to another. Vaults of information about the Phoenix Project, and more than 100 years of programming and reprogramming. This wonder led Princip, a lowly information specialist, to his current cause. As Gabriel peered into the tank, a two-toned gray robot approached. Its plastic coverings and molded features made it appear more human than the other droids. May I help you? Gabriel nodded, but did not look at the machine. I need to speak with Caitlin Bath. He held up the forged identity card showing him as Dr. John Bath and the authorization from Colonel Marsh. Of course. The robot creeped to a computer port in the wall, pressed a weighted button, and said, COB, simulation terminated. With that, a metal wall came down, separating Caitlin Bath and her contemporaries. A moment later, a drain opened in the floor. The water was flushed on the drain, and the elderly woman with it. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner and Willem DeGrieff. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. John Running Bear is based on a character created by Fire Pit Creative Group's close friend, Sam Ashu. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2020 by Fire Pit Creative Group. <laughs>